sometimes the people that you bring around you that you need to worry about the most. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today we're going to cover the case of Gregory Graff. And I'm actually switching it up, you guys. I'm having a daiquiri, and I'm actually kind of excited about it. Strawberry and delicious. Gregory Graff was born in California, October 28, 1975. He owned a family fence installation business in Allen Township, Pennsylvania, where he lives with his wife of 17 years, Daniel Bittner. They didn't have children together, but Danielle had three kids from previous relationships. A son, Jeremy, a daughter, Christy, and a daughter, Jessica. Jessica Paget was born on December 15, 1980. She was a 33-year-old mother of three. Her and her husband, Micah, have been together for eight years, but only married for a few months. They actually got married on August 1st of 2014. She was a very loving mother, very caring. After high school, she decided she wanted to go to Lehigh County Community College to get some credits in early childhood education. And she was employed as a teacher at the Duck Duck Goose Child Care Center in Northampton, Pennsylvania. They had their daily routines during the week like normal couples do. Michael would be the one to leave earlier in the morning since he worked construction and he got a ride to work every day. So he would get up pretty early and Jess would follow with all three kids. She would drop off the two older kids, then take her youngest to work with her. She felt blessed that she was able to take him to school every day. She was able to walk into his class, give him kisses, and then she would walk upstairs to where her classroom would be. Her life was really good at this point. On November 21st, 2014, it was the same old routine. Mike left for work, followed by Jess and the kids. She said goodbye to her son and went to her room. Today, she needed to go over to her parents' house so she could use their fax machine and so she could fax over a health insurance form. She left work at one, but her parents' house was only four miles away. It was pretty much a 10-minute drive. So she was due to be back at 120. But after it reached two hours later, Micah gets a call from the daycare stating that Jessica never came back from her lunch break and that nobody has been able to get a hold of her on her cell. So Micah's like, okay, well, let me try to call her mom to see maybe if they've been in contact since that's where she was supposed to be going. So Micah calls her mom and asks, have you heard from her? And I guess maybe he forgot, I don't know, but she was actually in Florida on business. She said no, she hasn't personally heard from her and to check with her stepdad, Greg. So Micah calls Greg. He told him that he wasn't sure if she came by since he's been in and out of the house all day and he never physically saw her there and there was no sign of her being there. And also, I mean, everybody knew that she had a key, so she was able to come and go. Micah decides it's time to call the cops, and he makes a report. Six hours after she went missing, the police were able to ping her phone, and it was only one mile away from the daycare center where she worked. A police officer found the car. It was abandoned in a general store parking lot. When he looked inside, there was nobody sitting in there, but just as he was standing there, her phone starts ringing. 
So he opens the door and goes in the car, and that's when he notices her purse is in there. Keys. Phone, obviously. It's ringing. Everything that this woman would need on a daily basis is just stranded in her car. That's when they do the dreaded walk back to the trunk, and thank God it is clear. So more detectives come on the scene, and they start to canvas the area, try to see what's nearby. What kind of cameras maybe they can find on other buildings that happen to be around the area. When they're looking in the actual parking lot where the car was found, it seems they're out of luck. There's no signs of any cameras anywhere. But one of the officers spots a camera outside of a beer distributing parking lot. And that seems to be facing right towards her car. They're thinking, oh, hell yeah. Let's hope it works. Because let's... Let's be honest, I'm sure more time than not, they do not work. <laughs> it's it's a crucial blow to the investigation. If that camera is working, whoever was in that car is going to be on that tape. The next day, they go in and they speak with the manager and they find out that the cameras do work. They are so stoked right now. They decide that they're actually going to preview the tape while they're still there. So they start the tape at when she would have left work and they just wait for her to pull up. Her car is spotted pulling into the parking lot at 1.13. Seconds later, she's seen getting out of the car. She pauses for just a split second and then walks right into the alley. And the only thing really over there is a restaurant I think there's like an auto shop. They're just a little things, but it's also a dead end. So where is she going? The tape is pretty grainy, so they can't really make out too much. You could see a figure emerge out of the car and walk off. You couldn't tell really anything about it other than they were wearing a white coat. The cops make a copy and then they take the video back for further analysis. They also decide that they're going to retrace her steps by driving the route that she would have taken to go to her parents' house. It was pretty cut and dry. There's one route, so they knew it something had to be there. So since she was supposed to be going to her parents' house, they drive over to the parents' house, and that's when they talk with Greg. And they want to, you know, have you seen her? Did she come? Did she not come? At this time, her mother, Danielle, is back from Florida, and she's a mess. She can't think of what could have happened. Where did she go? Why would she leave? She's got children. She's not going to go anywhere. She's happy. She's not running away. Greg tells them that he did not think that she made it over to the house that day, mostly because the fax wasn't even working properly. He said that it was on the fritz and that he had unplugged it. He said that he had to run out a few times during the day, and he never saw her. After 48 hours of her being missing, the detectives decide that they're just going to start over from scratch. They're going to retrace her steps all over again, but this time, maybe try to look at it from a different angle. So that's when they notice the Exxon gas station that was literally right in the cross streets of her route. So if she went to her mom's house, it would be on the film. They start watching the tape at when Jess left her job. And at 12.56, there she is. 
She's driving north on Main Street. Everything seems normal. She's driving normal. She's not speeding. Nothing, nothing seems out of the ordinary. So they keep watching the tape to see, does she come back? They keep watching to make sure she makes it on her way back. And at 110, they do spot her car. But this time, she's actually cutting through the Exxon parking lot. It, it appears she's driving completely different. Definitely more erratic. They start to wonder, is that even Jessica that's driving? They decide it's time to go take a look at the car. So they go to where the car was being examined by forensics. And when they get there, the position of the seat seemed to be just about right. Jessica was only 5'2", so she sat pretty close up to the steering wheel, and it ended up being right where it should have been. They then returned to the video of her getting out of the car, but this time they had taken it back to the headquarters and they're watching it on high-resolution screen. I mean, I'm sure it's like complete night and day. And that's when they noticed that the person who got out of her car had to be at least six feet tall. Their heart just drops. They know now that's not Jessica. As they keep watching the video over and over and over, what they notice is when the person bends down, what they're doing is moving her seat. They knew somehow the cops would be looking at her seat. So they made sure that when they got out of the car, they put it right back to where Jessica should have it. Of course, the first person they're going to want to talk to is her husband, Micah, since he was six feet tall and they're thinking, oh, we got you. But he has a rock solid alibi. He was at work all day. He didn't even have the means to do it. The man has no transportation. So how is he getting to from the whole lot of work for somebody who doesn't have the means to do it? It's been two days now since Jessica went missing and her friends and family start to do a search party. They hang up flyers. They start up a Facebook group, Help Find Jessica, which actually gets over 5,000 followers. Her mom is, she's just a mess. She can barely even communicate with people. And Greg keeps assuring her that they're going to find her. Her friends keep trying to stay positive for her, telling her we're going to bring her home. The detectives just keep going back and forth, back and forth between the videos. They go back and watch the video of the person getting out of the car again. They realize there's only one way out. If anybody parked there to leave, they had to be in another vehicle. So they start to watch. When Jessica got off of work and they watch her pull up, other than the parking lot where her car was left, there's only one other way to leave this place. And that's through a parking garage. But that also is visible from where the camera angle is at. They watch the video to see if and what comes out. Is there going to be another car come out? Is, is there going to be nothing? So they wait for her to pull up. They watch the whole video and they now they're going to keep watching it past that point. And 50 seconds later, a white truck pulls out. It was a white Ford 150 with a camper on the top, which was a very common truck at the time in that area. But one of the officers that was also there watching the video 
noticed that there was a black stripe on the bottom of the truck. And he kind of sits there and pauses for a minute because he knows he's seen that truck. And he's trying to think, where have I seen that truck? All of a sudden, it dawns on him. That's Greg Graff's truck. That's her stepdad's truck. They bring him in for questioning, and he admits that he did drive his truck from that garage on that day, but says his car was actually at the auto shop that's right there, and that he had gotten a ride from a neighbor. And that afterwards, he stopped to Exxon to eat lunch. Really, dude? Exxon? And went home. And at 1.30 is when he arrived at the house. He did not see any sign that Jessica was ever there. And from 1.30 to 3, he had workers coming in and out of his house so they could come and get their paychecks. And he, he told them, ask my workers. I, I was here all day. Nobody else was here. You know, they were able to help collaborate his alibi. Well, I mean, obviously, they're not going to take his full word for it. Even though they did question some of the employees, employees did, yeah, he was there. He was fine. You know, hey, have a good weekend. You know, he was cheery. Everything was good. But they decide that they're going to watch that tape again from the Exxon just to see if he actually does stop. How truthful is he being right now? And at 1.16 p.m., that's when he leaves the parking lot. They see him come out. But he does not stop at Exxon. He just keeps driving. So they just want to make sure they're dotting their I's, crossing their T's. So they decide that they're going to check transactions. Make sure any debit, credit card, any kind of transactions. Did he buy something? Maybe he got in an exit that we weren't aware of. Maybe he snuck in behind somebody. We don't know. <laughs> you don't know his life. So they check it. No records found. They also go talk to the neighbor. And when they ask her if she took him to the garage that day, she said, uh, I haven't seen him. haven't talked to him. Definitely haven't drove him anywhere. Now you got to bring him back in for questioning. And while they have him there, they send some detectives to go search the house. Danielle, she lets them in, of course. She, she wants answers. So do what you think you need to do. And they start to look around. They look at the fax machine and they plug it back in and they notice that the fax machine works. And not only that, but they end up finding a fax confirmation that is from Jessica with Jessica's signature on it. And it was going to the insurance place. So she made it there that day. They know for a fact Jessica made it to that house that day. They decide to look around even more. When they go down to the basement, they find a tissue that has blood on it. And it was in a garbage can. So they bag that and they take that into evidence. Next day, detectives go back to Greg's house. They want to confront him with the blood that they found. They want to see what kind of excuse he's going to have. What's his demeanor going to be like? As soon as they get there, he looks at the cop and he asks, can I go get a cigarette from upstairs? And the cop's like, okay, yeah, you, you can have a cigarette, but I mean, I'm going to go up there with you. So he escorts him upstairs and he's gathering up a cigarette and his lighter. And 
the cop's just kind of looking around the bedroom and he's like, you know, I want to make him feel at ease. I want him to feel comfortable. I want him to be able to tell me the truth. He notices he has some pictures on his dresser with him and his animals. And he starts making some small talk. And, you know, some like nice looking dogs, something, something like that. And out of nowhere, Greg says, yeah, it's a shame I'm not going to get to see them anymore. Well, officer knows that's game time. <laughs> so right then and there, you know what? Let's bring you down to the station and we'll get a full, full report from you. Let's, let's wait. Let's wait till we get there. Hold whatever it is that you want to tell us. We'll do it there. As they're walking him out of the house, Danielle starts losing it screaming, yelling, crying. You better tell them everything. You better tell them everything you know. Oh my God. I could not even imagine. They put him into the interrogation room and that's when they hear the awful truth about what happened to Jessica that day. She did in fact show up like she was supposed to, like they figured out. She sat in the chair at the desk that they had set up where she started to send her facts. Her back was towards him, so he started to walk up behind her and decided to shoot her in the back of the head. He then moved her body to a back bedroom. He was on a time crunch. He knew that everything had to be perfect and everything had to be just right. So as soon as he put her in the bedroom, he had to leave with her car. He drove like a madman, parked her car moved the seat, got in his car, went home. His employees started showing up. They came and got their checks like nothing ever happened. He told them all, have a good weekend. And when they were gone, he went back to the bedroom. And this is going to get kind of sick. He went back to the bedroom where he put Jessica's body and decided that he was going to set up a camera and took a video of him sexually abusing her dead body. They were stunned. One of the detectives blatantly just asked him, is that why you killed her? You wanted to have sex with her dead body? And he said yes. It wasn't until five days after that is when they found her body, which was under a pile of leaves behind a shed that was located on the seven acre property that he shared with Danielle. At that time, authorities also seized 13 bags of marijuana and confiscated $42,000 in cash and envelopes containing marijuana seeds from a safe found in his basement. Graff applied for a public defender saying in court that he didn't want to burden his family financially and a judge turned him down, ruling that he had enough money to pay for his own damn defense. <laughs> yeah. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and sexual abuse of a corpse. At trial, that poor jury had to view the video of him assaulting Jessica. And they said they could even hear the audio, which included profane comments about her body. His attorney didn't deny that Graf killed Jessica, but they argued that instead it was something like something snapped. And that the shooting was not premeditated. Coworkers testified that before she left work that day, that she kept getting calls from Greg, claiming that he needed her help with a computer program. 
They did provide proof, though, that the crime was planned in advance by showing surveillance video of Greg buying sex toys one week in advance before she was murdered. And he actually used those on her in the video. They also found out that this all happened just weeks after Danielle asked for a divorce. Like, who does that? I'm sorry, but come on now. When the jury went for deliberation, it only took six minutes for them to convict him of first-degree murder, which was also the length of the video that he took of her. Greg tried to appeal and say that he was high on alcohol, marijuana, and psychedelic mushrooms when he killed Jessica. He claimed that he got into an argument with her, blacked out in a fit of anger, and he had no idea that he was doing but clearly, the appeal was inconsistent with what he had told police. Five days after he killed her, on November 21st, 2014, he told a police officer that he had a crazy feeling, something, something of sexual nature, when he killed her. But if that's not even the worst thing that this man could do, which pretty sure that fucking is, you piece of shit, now... He is contesting the terms of divorce with her mother. Appearing in court via video feed from his prison cell in Pennsylvania, he told them that he never agreed to the terms that would give him 20% of the assets that he shared with his wife. He said that he was not given the proper information, even though he's going to spend the rest of his life no parole. Life in prison, no parole. He will not give this woman a divorce so he can keep his money. What do you need it for? Commissary? I mean, what is a pack of noodles? 25 cents? Come on. Her husband, Micah, says that he holds the 15 years of memories of his wife close to him, which include the birth of their children and their marriage. He called his wife a wonderful person who was the only girl that he had ever loved. He also stated that that's the hardest thing of all of it, knowing that you had a future. You had something that was yours and someone else took it from you. Her mom, Danielle, said that after all this was done and over with, she, she kind of had to put herself in a chair in a corner and work out all the demons in her head before she would allow herself to get out again. And I find that inspiring. That one's hard. That one's hard. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can get your crime fix on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. While you're there, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. Give that five-star rating. You can also follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or head over to CrimeOverCocktails.com, which is the official Crime Over Cocktails website, where you can check out the merch. You can become a patron and help support the show. We'll talk crime another time. Bye. Bye.